he was set apart by God. It was a special vow. Now, this vow had different parts to it. He wasn't to eat or drink anything that came from the vine. So no grape juice, no wine. He wasn't even allowed to touch the stuff. Okay? Couldn't even handle it. He also wasn't allowed to touch a dead body. And if someone, I mean, uh, someone that were to die right by him, then he had to go and shave his head. So he's not supposed to touch a dead body, and he's also not to cut the, the hair of his head, unless, of course, the instance of which he is touching a dead body. Now, we see what happens here. Look at verse 5 with me. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. His parents are accompanying him. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, it's interesting. He's going to a vineyard. He's not supposed to be near this stuff. And yet he's going to this vineyard. One would assume that he, he was indulging in something. He's handling it. Now, that could be a, that's a bit of conjecture, but it's a reasonable conjecture. Even then, let's say that that's not what he did. Let's look further going into the text. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But here's, here's the part that I really want us to focus on. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. Now, why didn't he tell his father and mother? Isn't this a dead body now that he's touching? So he's violating his vows. He doesn't want them to know that he's violating his vows. He's hiding it. He's hiding it. And look at, let's fast forward to verse 9. He comes back. Remember, he, he leaves. He comes back. He sees a lion. Some bees had, had put a hive in there where there's honey. And in verse 9, he scraped it out onto his, into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some of the honey to them. And they ate. Notice what they, the text says. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Why? Because he wasn't supposed to touch a dead body. He's violating his vows. He's keeping his sin secret. And we know that we're on this road to compromise when we're hiding our sinful acts. We're hiding our sinful acts. And we're, we're keeping them from other people. We're nurturing these idols of our heart. What are you hiding? What are you keeping from other people that you know you don't want anybody to know about? That you're nurturing it in secret? You know, it's very interesting in Scripture that it says our sin will find us out. That's what in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Can we call that up? It's on page 140. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Scripture says this, and I know I'm asking you to flip very quickly. In, in, in this passage, we have Moses warning the tribe of Reuben about what will happen if they do not help the Israelites capture the promised land. And as he does so, he reveals a key truth that helps in our understanding of sin. That if we sin against the Lord, our sin will find us, which, we, which means that we cannot escape its devastating effect on our lives. In Numbers 32, 23, we read this. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you you out find you out now you can either means that you will suffer the consequences could be immediate acts chapter 5 we have ananias and sapphira lying to the spirit of god god immediately immediately intervenes immediately or it could be circumstantially over time or it could be an eternity now some people say well why isn't god acting right now of something that just happened justice delayed does not mean justice denied. 
It's interesting that Paul writes about this. I'm going to put this scripture up for you in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 24. This is in the New Living Translation. I like how this is worded. It brings it out a little bit more clear for us. And Paul, by the Spirit, writing to young Timothy, says, Remember, the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. You see it immediately. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. It's going to come out. God will bring it out. That you can nurture it, you can hide it for some people for a lot of the time. But God knows. And see, with Samson, his sin is going to find him out. That There are going to be consequences for his action. Now, in order for us to make sure that we don't go down this road of compromise, because I don't know about you, I don't want to go there. I don't want to suffer that. I don't want to suffer the consequences like that. I want to avoid that road at all costs. And if we're to avoid that road, it must, we must make sure that we are depending on the right people. Depending on the right people. Now notice who he's depending on and who he's interacting with. He's interacting with these Philistines, these unbelievers. Now Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, and I'm just going to bring this verse up for you. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, yes, we are to be out with unbelievers. We're to be engaging with them. But if we find out that their behavior is affecting ours, we need to separate ourselves. Bad company can, can ruin good morals. Or Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You surround yourself morons, you're going to end up getting hurt. Getting hurt hurt. Now let's look at verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. Now we see his father going down. He is leaving uh, his home, going down to Timnah. But it's interesting, his mother is not there. Notice that, his mother is not there. Now we're going to see probably why in a moment, but it's just his father. Perhaps she was in disagreement with his his marriage and refused to go to the wedding. And also notice, none of his friends are there. Look again at verse 10. Actually, um, verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. Meaning that he didn't have any friends with him either. It means that his friends didn't even go, if he had any. That That no one is in favor of this wedding. So his mother doesn't go. His father agrees to go. He doesn't have any friends. So the Philistines are like, man, we feel bad for the guy. We've got we to give some people. It's like going to a wedding where all the bride's family's there and the groom's family doesn't show up. And it looks really empty. So what they have to do is, is like, you know what? Let's put some of the bride's family over here to even it out. So he doesn't look like he's homeless. It's one of these social things. And this is what we do. I mean, how many people do you know that had a wedding that a family member didn't agree with and they didn't show up? I mean, because of principle. I have several people that I know that will not go to certain weddings because they disagree with the wedding. And that's what you see going on with the mother. You see with his friends. They're not going. So he is, in essence, in one way, rejecting them. And he's embracing and allowing these people to come alongside him. So he has these 30 companions and then proposes a riddle. You know, guys being guys. He comes up with a a challenge, a little competition between them that they don't receive well, especially when he lays out the condition of the riddle that they have to give him 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. So it's an inner garment, an outer garment. Um, He's taking 60, I mean, it's like 60 pieces of clothing. And clothing back in the day is very expensive. 
It's not like today where we have multiple changes of outfits that we can wear daily. They'd be wearing one thing until it wore out, kind of like I do with jeans. How many of you guys wear jeans like forever? What's the record? I can go like seven weeks. You don't want to be around me, but it's like pig pen. Walking in the smell is pretty bad. But see, these guys would be wearing their clothes for weeks at a time. And so that's a lot of money that they had to spend to get that much much clothing. But yet they agree to the riddle. They agree to this riddle to be a part of this. So you see him, them thinking about it. Look back at our text. Look back at our text. So in three days, we're at verse 14. Now, first of all, let's look at the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, obviously, he's talking about the lion and the honey. But in three days, he has, gives them seven days. Now, it was a typical to celebrate the wedding for seven days. It was a party. Especially in the ancient culture, uh, they would do a whole week long. The whole community would be involved in it. For seven days, this feast is going on. But in three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. So they're pretty frustrated. So look, what happens? On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife. So they go to her. They know her. They go to her and they threaten her. They say, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. I don't know if I'd want these guys at my wedding. Okay? Look at who he's depending on, though. And even his, his wife. He goes, they say to her, have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my folks. How am I going to tell you? She wept before him seven days that their feast lasted. Now, that's a very important point. Look at verse seven, that 17. She wept before him the seven days their feast lasted. Now, notice, how many days did it take them before they even questioned her? Three days. It was on the fourth day they asked, right? So why is she weeping the seven days? Meaning she was already curious about the answer. So she asks them, but after they come to her, now it's become really pressing. You have to tell me. What is it? What is it? Please. If you really love me, you're going to tell me this. Now, we see here that she is, she's not willing to bring him in and say, hey, they threatened me. She's not willing to do that. She's, saying, she's just thinking from an emergency, protecting of her family, but she's not thinking about this new relationship that she has. And see, he's depending on this woman who's basically morally compromised. Now, yes, she's under threat, but she's a Philistine too. She doesn't have the same uh, desires, the same standard of conduct, the same uh, adherence, uh, part of the covenant community that Samson had. Now, what can we learn from this? There's a few things, uh, and they're not major points, but I think that they, they speak to us. See, depending on the right people involves this, choosing your spouse carefully. Choosing your spouse carefully. Make sure that you look at their character. I mean, it's great to be attracted to a person. I, had this, uh, I did this session when I was with the, the Russians in Connecticut where they would text me questions on one session. And it was just an impromptu thing. There was nothing formal about it. But they'd text me these questions. And I'd look down, and they had 15 questions at one time. And one of them, God bless the young man or woman who said this, they said, is it wrong to be attracted before you look at their heart? And I went, no. <laughs> if I, I'm in trouble if that's the case. It's not wrong to be attracted. But that attraction, those looks are going to fade. My wife's never will, but that will, it will fade. One day they will fade, and it comes down to the character of the person. Who are they? What are they made of? How are they, how are they survived? That's why I tell people, before you get married, 
evaluate them. When you're, it's hard because we're in the infatuation stage. And then infatuation stage, everything is great, and we miss the major errors and the major things. So I tell people, take a year and a half. Evaluate. How are they with your parents? How are they with their parents? How are they with your friends? How are they with the, um, their friends? How do they do when, when difficulty or trial or tribulation happens? Those are the things that we have to look for. Because when we're in this infatuation stage, everything is great, and we get married, and we're like, what? I missed that. How did I miss that? So we have to choose our spouse carefully. Also, evaluating friendships wisely. Evaluating friendships wisely. I mean, think about these guys that he is depending on, that they are threatening his life. Now, granted, they're given to him, but they are making a threat to kill his wife and her family. You know, it's interesting. I, I find the Proverbs... Uh, proverb in Proverbs chapter 22 verse 24 through 25 make no friendship with a man given to anger nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare see he's giving himself to this relationship with these guys ready to kill his wife and her family now he doesn't know that yet but these are these are not great moral guys he's entangling himself with these unbelievers who who this is part of who they are it's their culture and it's horrible Now, a third thing we can see is that we should also make sure that we are avoiding making promises rashly. Avoiding making promises rashly. Samson makes a dumb wager that he thought was a sure thing. And then it ended up backfiring on him and he had to pay up. Now, some might say, ah, it's just a joke. But not in the ancient world. A person's word was their bond. And they would rather die than go back on their word. And he made a promise and had to pay up for it. I like what Proverbs 10, chapter 10, verse 19 says. When words are many... Transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. You know, they said George Washington's greatest gift was silence. And many of the founding fathers were known for their oration. They were, uh, they were great speakers and orators. But yet, Washington, they came to him as a confidant because he was so good at keeping his mouth shut. It made him very wise in their eyes. Avoiding making promises rashly, or as it says in James chapter 5, verse 12, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, when we do this, when we go down this road of compromise, it leaves others in a bad place. And we have to be discerning the difficult position our choices put others. See, when we go down this road, it's not just affecting us. It affects those around us. It can affect affect those at our work, uh, classmates, friendships, or family. It can affect everyone around us. Now, of course, we don't intend for that to happen, but that's what happens. See, our choices rarely just affect us. I'm reminded, and I've shared this story before, but when I was in seminary in New England, I had a, uh, a call from a, a close relative of mine. And the relative said, uh, d- never calls me, ever. And just said, started talking, and I said, well, why are you calling? I mean, I, I care for you, but we don't talk on the phone. It's out of the ordinary. So we have something that's come up um, that we need your help with. I said, well, sure, what, what is that? They said, well, um, our daughter is 14 years old, is pregnant, and uh, we want you to take this child. And we were wanting another child. We had uh, Eliana at the time, uh, our oldest daughter, and I had just started graduate school. We had moved from Chicago there, and it struck me, and I didn't know what to do. So I sought counsel from those who were older, and, and they said, you know, we want you to take this child. And, 
and uh, adopt this child. And, and, uh, but I could, I could see in the tone of the voice, it wasn't like full-time adoption. It was just kind of hold on to the baby for a while. And so I sought counsel from a pastor who uh, could not have children of his own, so they had adopted two children. And I said, can you tell me what this process is like and what this means and help me walk through these steps? I don't know. And they said, well, if you were to take this child, this child will never be yours. And there will be nothing to stop them from just showing up and taking that child one day. I said, well, I don't like that. And I wasn't expecting that. And put me in a very hard place. What do I do? They said, well, we know of some families that, that are, are actively looking for a child. And they would love to take this child and raise this child and give them a great home, and they would raise them in, in the teachings of Christ and how to walk with Christ and share the gospel and a great godly family. I said, that sounds great. That sounds great. They, they, they want this child. And, and, and I said, I, okay, let me, let me call this relative back. So I'm talking to the relative, and I said, well, what about adoption? And they said, well, we don't want anyone else to raise this child but us uh, in a family. I, I said, okay, well, I know this family that might take them. And I said, well, we won't do that, but we know this family. And they, before they could even really explain that, they said, no, thank you. Um, you know, we'll take care of it on our end. So I thought, oh, that was a little bit of a strange ending of a conversation. And then I, I get off the phone, and then I find out days later that they pay to have the girl have an abortion. So rather than having us having someone else who wanted this child, in their mind, it was easier to kill the child, to murder the child, rather than give them to a different family to raise. And, and we see that our choices affect other people and put other people into difficult positions and often results in them making very hard choices. Making very hard choices. That's letter A in your notes. Making hard choices. Puts them in a, in a difficult place. And that's what Samson did. He put his family in a difficult place. He put his wife, he put his, his parents in a very difficult place to make very hard choices. See, the parents sought, I mean, for them it was even harder because Samson came home and he said, I want this woman as a wife from the Philistines. Now, that was an insult to his parents because in that culture it was customary for the parents to select the spouse for their child. Now, how would you like that responsibility, parents? Could you select a spouse for your kids? In, in the indie culture, you see that still going on. Uh, Reuben and Evangeline or, or, or Naresh or Manju could testify about that. In our culture, in our Western American culture, that's not commonly accepted. That just flies in the face of our individuality. That's what Samson's doing. And they're like, no, 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 please, let us choose. And if you're going to do it, please, let it be within the tribe. It's best to marry within the tribe. Don't go outside of the tribe. But if you do, it's okay. It, it's, oh, it's acceptable to, as long as you marry within Israel. Marry within Israel. But no, you're, don't go to the uncircumcised. The, it's, this is a racial, a racial epithet that he's throwing at him. The uncircumcised. It's, it's a despicable name. They're outside of the covenant community of God. Don't do that. And yet he insists on it, putting them in a very difficult position. Now, what choices are you making that are affecting others right now? What sin are you holding on to? What are you doing? It's causing those around you to put them in hard, make hard choices. Now, next, I want us to see that it also often results in them violating their conscience. Violating their conscience. See, for them, now they're participating in this marriage that they're not agreeing with. And the, the mom can't do it. 
The dad is joining in. They're violating their conscience. He didn't want this. And see, when you have someone and force them to violate their conscience, then they feel a sense of shame, regret, failure, powerlessness, hopelessness. And they feel dirty for having participated in this something. It's viola- this act. It violates then their conscience to be engaging in this marriage outside of the covenant of God. Now, speaking about my family member earlier who had boarded her child, I found out some time later that another family member who had been a deacon in his church funded the abortion. When I learned of this, I spoke to him and I asked him why he did it. And he said, what was the alternative? The child would have never had a future. And then I told him that we had a family lined up that had been ready to take the child, thus giving this child a future. And, And his face went ashen white he realized that he had sinned against God. I mean, he'd already sinned against God, but in even a greater way. But there was an alternative there, and he had violated, he felt dirty and shameful, and you could see it on him. See, our choices can force others to violate their conscience. We shouldn't do that. Additionally, it often requires us dealing with conflict, dealing with conflict, with distressing conflict, Look at what happened with Samson's 30 companions after he'd given them the riddle. It led them to her, to ask of her. There was a conflict. There was animosity. There was frustration. There was pain. I mean, think about that. Our sinful choices force other people to deal with conflict. The alcoholic holding on to his alcoholism forces conflict to go on with the family. Or the drug addict. Or the person with a pornography addiction. It forces this conflict with other members of the family. And it brings out this hostility that people then must deal with. And they are dealing with this distressing conflict. But that's not all. It also has them betraying those closest to them. Betraying those closest to them. Look at verse 18. See, Samson's wife betrays him. She nags him until she gets the answer to the riddle. And he knows it was her. Look at verse 18. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer. Now, it's never wise to call your wife a heifer. All right? I would not encourage this tactic. All right? Just FYI. Don't do that. Um, and he, he, but he, he's saying, if you had not plowed with my heifer. Now, it wasn't customary to plow with a heifer. It was customary to plow with a bull. A heifer was never plowed with. So he's saying, basically to them, you cheated. You fought unfairly. He says, you're cheating. And yet... He still has to honor that. And she's, he recognizes that his wife now has betrayed him. He was constantly getting women wrong in his life. He was looking for love in all the wrong people and in all the wrong places. And ends up with her betraying him to preserve her family, but she doesn't bring him in. And that, that means that it also involves facing some painful circumstances. Painful circumstances. See, when we make these type of choices in our life, we face these threats. See, by giving them the riddle and them not being able to answer it, they threatened her and the rest of the family's life and they had to face painful circumstances. See, when we choose sin, we do place our loved ones in a precarious and often difficult position. And these circumstances, by the way, in the next chapter come true. That they end up burning her family, killing them all. See, we don't recognize it. We don't realize how bad. And we always say, we didn't intend that. But sin always has a consequence. There's no shelf life on sin and the consequences of sin. 
there will always be a consequence. It might be to us internally. It might be to our conscience. It could be to other people. There's many different ways that it will come out, but it will come out. So our choices, when we go down this road of compromise, often results in our, those we love facing painful circumstances. Now, knowing the steep consequences we face if we go down this road, we must make sure that we're determining to live purely. We've looked at his life. We've seen where he fell short. We must make sure that we are determining to live purely. We must say no to compromise in our life. We must fight sin. Because Christ has, by his death on the cross, he cut the chain of sin, that the power of sin is no longer over us. Now, we still have the presence of sin, but we no longer have to submit to the power of that sin, that he has freed us from that, that his death was efficacious to save us, not only from our sins and their consequences in the past, especially eternal consequences, but to save us from the power of sin, from indwelling us entirely, that we can submit to the Spirit of God and grow in righteousness. Now, to to live purely involves three different things. First of all, it means, or four different things. It means obeying absolutely. Obeying absolutely. Now, uh, Arabian horses, I've been watching a little bit on Saudi Arabia lately, and Arabian horses go through rigorous training in the deserts of the Middle East. The trainers require absolute obedience from these horses and test them to see if they're completely trained. Now, this final test is almost beyond comprehension and beyond the endurance of every, any living things. See, the trainers force these horses to do without water for many days. Then he turns them loose, and of course they start running toward the water. But just as they get to the edge, ready to plunge in and drink, the trainer blows his whistle. The horses have been completely trained and who have learned complete, perfect obedience stop. They turn around and come pacing back to the trainer. They stand there quivering, wanting water, but they wait in perfect obedience. And when the trainer is sure that he has their obedience, he gives them. He gives them the signal to go back to drink. Now, this might seem severe to us, but when you're on the trackless desert of Arabia and your life is entrusted to your horse, you would better make sure you have a trained, obedient horse. We must accept God's training that he has for our lives and obey him. It also means submitting to authority. Don't be your own authority. Submit to authority. God's authority is meant to bless us and live the life that he intends for us, that we might experience joy and peace with God and peace with one another and peace within ourselves, to submit to his authority, to let his word be the direction of our life and to set the course of our life. Now, thirdly, we must make sure that we are forsaking anger, forsaking anger. See, Samson gives himself over to anger. Look at verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Yes, God is working on him. And I don't want to, to demean that. We're going to come back to that in, in just a moment. And he went down to Ashkelon, which was far away from Timnah, far enough that the news wouldn't travel that, of what he was about to do that would alert them. And he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who, uh, who, who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So he doesn't stay with his wife, doesn't bring his wife with him, He's so angry that he doesn't want to deal with the situation that he leaves. He's hot angry. He's mad. You ever been hot angry before? So mad that you're just shaking? Hot mad? I'm sure, sir, we all get like that at one time or another. There were times when I was a kid, I knew that when my mom's face got red, I need to run. Because something was going to fly. <laughs> she get, and she was a really quiet lady. And at that moment, I'm like, I'm out. I'm out, and I'm getting the toilet paper to cover my butt because something's going to happen. 
and it's not going to feel good. So, we see him getting hot angry. And, and his, the father of the bride thinks that, and, and some scholars differ, they think that she, he might, by being so angry and leaving so abruptly, thinks that Samson had divorced his wife right then and there. Because you could say that, like, I divorce you, I'm out. And Samson doesn't do that, but the father assumes that. So what does he do? Look at verse 20. Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Well, that's going to get him even more angry. And we're going to see what happens with that next week. And his anger blows up. Now, the scripture says that we're to forsake anger. As Psalm 37 verse 8 says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Tends only to evil. Or as Benjamin Franklin once said, whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. Ends in shame. Now, nevertheless, maybe we, we see ourselves in, in Samson. We see our struggles. We say, oh, I've, I've blown it. I've gone down this road to compromise. And there's a little bit, of, there's hope here. That God, you, you might have blown it, but it doesn't mean that everything that happened in that period of time where it was blown, God can't use. See, I want us to look back for a moment, and I, I skipped over this intentionally. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord. This is where he is engaging with the Philistines, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Meaning, and it's not saying that God ordained him to go off and violate his word, but it was that God was using this to bring about his purpose. That God can even take our disobedience and the mistakes that we make for his purpose. That's the next point I want you to write down. See, when we fail, God often is utilizing our mistakes to accomplish his purpose. That he will use the things that you have done in your life that were wrong, that were sinful, to bring about his glory of his name. Now, that doesn't mean we intentionally go disobey and say, God's going to use this for his glory and I'm going to stay in this sin. No. That's where Romans chapter 2 says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of your disobedience, basically. That we don't need to disobey, that we need to continue on. But when we do fail, we, and when we are confessing and we're repenting, that God can take the, the sins that we have done and use them for the glory of His name. That He will utilize our mistakes to bring about and, um, and accomplish his purpose. Think for David. Think about a moment for David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And we see his confession of sin in Psalm 51. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. That psalm has helped me when I've struggled to know that you can be sorrowful for sin and the struggles that you have. And yet, God, I see that as a person like me and it gives me hope that I can be forgiven. See, when other people can look at the mistakes in your life, they can receive comfort and to know that God worked in and through you still. That he's not done with us yet. There's a story that I want to close with about God using the mistakes of others, even tragedies, to bring about his purpose. See, Bruce Goodrich was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M University. And one night, Bruce was forced to run until he dropped, and, and he did, but he never got up. Bruce Goodrich died before he even entered college. A short time after the tragedy, Bruce's father wrote this letter to the administration, faculty, student body, and the Corps of Cadets. Now, let me, before he even think about that letter, what would you do as a parent if your child was forced to run until they dropped and they died? What would you do? File a lawsuit? What would you do? You demand justice? You demand someone's head on a platter? What would you do? 
It's interesting what his father did. He writes this letter to the administration, faculty, student body, and the Corps of Cadets that I'm sure were dealing with the guilt themselves going, what happened? That was not what we intended. That was a mistake. That was wrong. Yet they're having to suffer the consequences for it. He says this, I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. Mr. Goodrich went on, I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen, perhaps one answer will be so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. What a perspective. That's a great perspective. To realize that God could take that mistake and use it to awaken people to the reality of their need for God. And he saw that. See, God can take the worst of our tragedies and our sins and our sufferings and our trials and our tribulations that we feel that we have blown, that we have failed, and he can use them for the glory of his name and bring his name glory. So I hope and pray that many of us stay away from the road of compromise, that we might turn from it. But if we have found ourselves there, that we might forsake it and we might be thankful and ask God to use those mistakes that we have made to bring other people to the saving knowledge of his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that, thank you for the example of Samson, that he was a, a truly flawed fighter, but he, he fought on. And Lord, we look at his life as a warning and as a challenge to see how your spirit worked through him so powerfully and great acts and feats of accomplishment and nevertheless to also see his tremendous failures and his, his disposition and his tendency toward not fighting his sin but engaging in it, indulging it. Lord, may we see his life as a warning and may we forsake sin and pursue the path of righteousness, not the path of compromise. May we seek to be fully and absolutely obedient and fully dependent upon you that your name might receive glory in and through our lives. And Lord, we thank you that his life ultimately points to the cross of Christ, knowing that we are failures, that you are the sin forgiver, that by the gift of your son dying on the cross for our sins, that our sin could be paid for, and that we could have a second chance, a clean slate, and we could make a U-turn in the path of compromise to pursue you with complete obedience and fulfillment and joy. So Lord, please, use us, speak through us, Help us to walk with you that your name might receive glory in us and through us and we might grow and enjoy of knowing that we are doing what we have been made to do and that is glorify your name. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.